All right, as you're making your way to Acts chapter 4, warning, trick question on the way, trick question on the way. Aren't you glad for that flicker of hope that we just sang about? No, we didn't sing about a flicker of hope. We sang about what kind of hope? Who remembers the word? Starts with a B. Bright hope for tomorrow. Aren't you glad that your soul's destiny is not relying on how well you hold on to God? It is all His faithfulness. He's doing all the holding. He's doing the keeping, as we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1. All right, we're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. A new chapter for us, but we're still... Kind of chapter 3 and 4 of Acts go together. They're a a unit, and they have kind of a very common theme. It should be obvious as we're going through. Um, And I want to kind of mention this. I As you have your Bible open, for me, it's all right here on the same, so I can see it very easily as I glance back. I'm looking back at chapter 2, verse 43. The second part of verse 43, there was a... A statement that was made that was broad in general, Acts chapter 2, verse 43, says in the second half of the verse, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So that's, that's just a broad statement. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And that's just, again, broad general statement. I believe, I can't say this definitively, the more I keep reading this over and over, I'm continuing to come to a conclusion because of the flow and now today the reaction that we're going to see from the enemies of Christ to the apostles. I believe that what we're reading in chapter 3 and 4 is the first instance of those many wonders and signs that were done. I believe this is the first instance. It's chapter 3. Peter and John are on their way to the temple around 3 p.m. They're going in the beautiful gate. There's a man who's over 40 years old. He's never walked a day in his life. Peter looks down and declares the name of Jesus Christ over him. And the man ends up being healed because of it. A large crowd starts gathering because everyone recognizes that's the lame man that always... He's been there for decades begging for money. And so as the crowd is drawn, Peter and John quickly deflect from themselves they they refuse to take the credit for it and they start telling the crowd Jesus deserves the credit this was done in the power in the name of Jesus Christ but then they take that opportunity to tell this crowd of Jews in the temple in Solomon's porch this portico that's covered area he starts telling them that they delivered the Christ the son of God they delivered Jesus over to the Roman governor Pilate And they denied him when Pilate wanted to release him. Pilate had his mind made up. I want to let this man go. He's done nothing wrong. I'm going to let him go. In fact, Pilate made it so easy. It was like T-ball, right? I mean, the ball is just right there on the tee. All you got to do is hit it. He offered them. He says, somebody's going free today. Do you want this man named Barabbas, who is a robbing murderer, to go free on your streets? Or do you want Jesus, the compassionate, sinless healer, who's the Son of God, who's the king of the Jews. So Pilate's already come to this conclusion. Somebody's going free on the, on the streets today, and they end up asking for Barabbas to go free, and they call for Jesus to be crucified. And so Peter just preaches about their sin. He names it, and they're under great conviction. But then as we looked last week, last week's message, second part of chapter 3, 
Not to give them an out, but he says, what you did, you did it in ignorance. You didn't know what you were doing. You had no clue you were, you were crucifying the Lord of glory. You were crucifying the author of life. You didn't know it. But now you do because I've told it to you. You can't claim ignorance anymore. So he gave them a very specific action step to repent of that sin, to change their mind deeply about Jesus, to accept him. So he gives this call out in verse 19 of chapter 3. If they would do that individually, their sins, he promises God would blot out their sins. But if all the Jews, again, what percentage? If 100% of the Jews would repent of their mindset toward Jesus and receive him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, then God would also send Jesus back to earth and his presence would bring in and usher in what we call the millennial kingdom that's talked about by the prophets in the Old Testament. And it would be, it's called here in chapter 3, the time of restoration and refreshing. That, and he promises, again, individually he'll forgive your sins and blot them out. But if Israel repents, he's going to send Jesus back in the time of restoration and refreshing will come. And so this is Peter's message. But if, notice with me in chapter 4, we're going to try to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. With that as the backdrop, notice the second word. As we get into verse number one. So Peter's preaching, and no second word, as, as they were speaking to the people. So he's interrupted. He's preaching about Jesus. And then as they were speaking, he and John, here comes three groups of people. The priests, so there's this, this group of priests who are on duty that day. And they, I think it was 24 cycles, 24 rotations, 24 teams. And they would rotate through the year. So here's this group of priests. And again, I'm, I'm reading between the lines. I'm assuming they're probably thinking, what is going on? It's the evening prayer time. We're doing the final sacrifice. Where is everybody? And finally, people start figuring out. There, there's a crowd of people over there. And they go investigate it. And sure enough, they recognize that guy. And here we got these two guys. We're pretty sure we know who they're affiliated with. They're the followers of that other person that we put to death. And there's this massive crowd. No wonder nobody's up. So here come the priests. And by the way, they're sending word back. Again, I'm reading between the lines. They're sending word back to this other group of people. So now look at verse 1. As they, Peter and John, are speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple. So here's a man who has a police force that's coming with him. He's the one who's in charge of all that goes on within the temple. Here comes the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And it's like they swoop down very aggressively. Here they come in. Peter and John are trying to preach. In verse 2, see, they look at the first two words. Greatly annoyed. You've seen people who are annoyed. You know what annoyed looks like. Now, I had the word greatly annoyed, right? Do you hear the Star Wars music? Do you hear it? Here they come, these three groups. Here they come, right? They're swooping down. Greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Some have even translated that. Again, it could be taken a couple of ways. I'm going to offer all three thoughts in, in, in a little bit. They're greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming, watch this, in the case of Jesus or proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection from the dead. And so when they get there, what happens? They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. Why? For it was already evening. They're gonna, you're going to hear me use this word, the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish high court. This is the Jewish leaders in all the land. So you had the Roman Empire was in charge, but they let the Jews have a semblance of their own self-governing, and that government was mainly seated in this Sanhedrin. We'll talk about them today. So verse 3, they arrested them, put them in custody till the next day, for it was already evening. The Sanhedrin meets in the morning, and they're not going to convene this late in the day, so we're going to look at this tomorrow. Now, I know that Jesus' trial was in the night, but the Sanhedrin was ready. That was an illegal trial, but they were ready. had their people, had the right people to get a quorum to try Jesus illegally at night. Well, they're, they're not ready. This has caught them off guard, so they're just going to have to wait till the next day. So they put them in custody, for it was already evening. Now watch verse 4. We're not going to linger there long, but Luke, our author of this book, inserts this in verse 4. It's very important. So here they come swooping down. They arrest them. No doubt the crowd's going to disband. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Off go Peter and John. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men, the males, came to about 5,000. There's a couple of ways of looking at that. A few people believe what that means is 5,000 males got saved on this occasion. And then more people got saved here than got saved on the day of Pentecost. Most do not. I don't see it that way. This is Luke giving us another report card on the church. There were 120, right? There was 120 and then there's 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. And the Lord kept adding daily. And by this point, counting those who are going to get saved here in this temple sermon, it's going to be up to 5,000 males. So if there's 5,000 males now in the Jerusalem church, you can kind of figure, I don't know what, 15, 20,000 people are in the Jerusalem church at this point. You want to remember that when we get to chapter 6 because some issues are going to arise because of how many people. It's a brand new church and it's just really exploding in its numbers. But Peter and John are in jail. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes. Sanhedrin. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So these would be the big wigs in town. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had set, watch verse 7, when they had set them, Peter and John, I will go ahead and tell you, you're going to see, you should perceive this, the lame man is also going to be there with Peter and John. I don't know, did the lame man go to jail overnight? Or was he called the next day as a witness? I'm not real sure. I mean, what did he do? Why am I in here? What are you guys in for? Well, uh, healed that guy. And... Big crowd gathered, and we started talking about Jesus. What are you in for? I got healed, and I ran around and praised God. Oh, you're, you're horrible. That's terrible. Verse number seven. When they, had set, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. And the idea is they kept inquiring. It's not just like once. This is the gist of what's coming at them. By what power or by what name do you do this? By what power? By what name? You guys got a name? You got power? How did you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I am not going to be able to get across to you this morning the absolute boldness that is on display. I am not going to be able to do it. If you want, I mean, imagine that tomorrow you are standing before a joint session of Congress and the Supreme Court. And you're brought there right in that chamber and you're standing all by yourself in front of all of them. And they're trying to just come at you with charges. It was worse than that. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, picture this. I'll give you a number later how many of them there were. He says to them, rulers of the people. He's filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's controlling him. Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. Did you catch it? You see the little lady over in the corner? And she's taking the minutes on the typewriter. Not really. Somebody's writing the notes. Here's what Peter's doing. If we're being, let it be noted, just to be clear, we spent the night in jail. You arrested us yesterday because you want to examine us today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. Is that a crime? I didn't know that was a crime. But if that's what we're being examined for, by what means this man has been healed? Then verse 10, Peter gives the Sanhedrin the strategy that's coming. If that's what we're being examined for, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. There's the strategy. We're going to be telling you and all of them. This is what's coming. This is what we're going to be doing. Let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by, we do have a name, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. But I'm not done. Since you, while I'm here answering those questions, I've got some more. This Jesus is The stone. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. And their minds are racing. Oh, yeah, we remember. You're saying Jesus is the rejected stone? Oh, yeah, I'm not done. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And, still not done, there is salvation, good news, there is salvation in no one, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have two thoughts this morning. Would you notice with me first in verses 1 through 4, the arrest of Peter and John. The arrest of Peter and John. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. And they arrested them. So we're going to have some principles a couple of times 
So I hope you'll catch the principles. They're important. And they won't even be on your screen, a couple of things that are, that are important. The first one, just need to set it in your head. Now, listen, Peter and John are preaching and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Note it in your mind, whenever that is happening, whenever Jesus is being exalted, Satan, who is one person in one place, he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, he's one person, but he's going to hear these reports, and certainly he has his eye on what's going on in Jerusalem. When Jesus is being exalted, Satan, who is over a whole army of demonic forces, is going to hear about that, and he's going to deploy them to try to disrupt that in any way possible, mark it in your mind, even to the point one of his favorite techniques is to use religious people to persecute and stop spiritual people. That's what you're seeing here. This is not a, a brand new tactic. This has been doing this a long time, using religious people to persecute spiritual people and spiritual activity. Christ is being exalted, and Satan's going to try to disrupt it and put a stop to it. So don't be surprised. Let's just make our minds up. We're not going to be shocked. But religious people are opposing the work of God. Yeah, it's been going on for thousands of years. And Satan's instigating it. And the people that are in it, they have no clue whatsoever. Now, we have these three groups. Look up this way. Watch this. You have the priests, this group. They're on duty. Here they come. And you have this captain of the temple called the Sagan. Here he comes. He's being flanked by the temple police force made up of Levites. And then we have this group called the Sadducees. So watch. There's this tribe of Levi, this tribe, one-twelfth of the nation of Israel, this tribe the Levites, and then within the Levites, there are these priests. So it's not all the Levites, it's just the family of Aaron. And then out of them, through the 1,500 years getting down to this point, then you get to the special family within, the families of the families within the priests that become like the chief priests. Now notice, all the chief priests are all Sadducees. And within them is this family of the high priests. We have four of them named later on in the text. And out of there is going to come the high priests. So we've got three groups. we got, here come the priests, the captain of the temple, flanked by Levites, and the Sadducees. They have something in common. They're all Levites. Write this down. Since the Levites lived from the offerings of the other 11 tribes, the offerings of animals and produce and grain and money, Here's the Levite. This one tribe lives by the offerings of the other 11 tribes. What's happening in verse number 1 is a group of men who frankly stand to lose their position of authority, even their very livelihood, if the nation of Israel ever acknowledges that the death of Jesus on the cross was the final sacrifice for sin. So these people can't have that. Like, if those people out there ever, ever realize that Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate Lamb of God, then they're not going to need us to do what we do here at the temple anymore, and we're going to lose our whole livelihood, and we're going to lose all of our authority. And that's exactly what's taking place. This captain of the temple was number two in command in the whole nation. He was usually like the successor that was going to be the one that would follow the current high priest. Again, number two ranking. Here they come, swooping down. I want to hit something quickly. Look at verse number one at the end. Notice the Sadducees. I have a, some bullet points. Let's hit them quickly. You'll see them on the screen. I'm going to keep saying them. You just keep catching up. 
What I'm about to say about the Sadducees are some basic truths. None of these things are true about the Pharisees. You hear us talk about the Pharisees, Sadducees. This is the Sadducees. This is not the Pharisees. Pharisees have their own issues, but they are not these five things. Sadducees, number one, they denied life after death. They totally denied life after death. So in other words, don't believe in the resurrection. Let that sink in. Here's the nation of Israel and its most powerful leaders... It's most powerful, the ones in their government, they have the greatest influence in all the land. They don't believe there's life. You die, that's it. Now, as you're hearing that, I want to impress upon your mind, think about that. Because here's where my mind goes. I would want to go back in time and ask, hey, guys, listen, if you really don't believe in life after death, but they all do, what do you care? Just let them be. If you're right, it doesn't matter. If you're wrong, then you're opposing truth. So just let them have their little fairy tale. But there's a reason that they oppose. It should become more clear. They don't believe in life after death. No resurrection. Number two, they denied the existence of angels and demons. Angels and demons, those aren't real. They don't accept that either. Again, neither of those things are true of the Pharisees. The Pharisees accept both of those. The Sadducees do not. You may be wondering why this third point is important. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the only books they accepted. The Pharisees accepted all of the books of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, the Pharisees accepted a lot more than the books of the Old Testament. They accepted the tradition of the fathers, in some cases being even more authoritative or on equal ground with all of the Old Testament. The Sadducees are like, no, we don't even accept all that. We only accept these. Pause. They don't believe in the resurrection because as they studied the first five books of the Bible, they don't think the resurrection is taught anywhere in the first five books. Does any, do you remember when Jesus and the Sadducees had a confrontation over the resurrection? Do y'all remember what Jesus said to them? This what? Yes. So that is one of his texts. Do you remember what he says to them? He uses the first five books. He pulls something out of Exodus. Do you remember? He's telling them in essence. you remember when God introduced himself to Moses? He said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you catch it? This is how Jesus answered the Sabbath. Now, it's not in the first five books of the Bible. Really? Then why did God... Introduce himself to Moses by saying, Moses, and they accept that. Moses, I used to be Abraham's God. I used to be Isaac's God. There was a time I was Jacob's God. I'll be your God. That's not. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, implying that, oh, yeah, they're still alive. I'm still their God. You say, how did the Sadducees answer that? Yeah, they didn't. They just went home. And everybody else around watching the whole thing kind of chuckled and got a big kick how Jesus destroyed he lit you up. You guys had nothing to say. Jesus destroyed you. Because he had the truth on his side. Number four, write this quickly. Very important. The Sadducees dominated the office of the high priest. They, again, all the highest offices. It's like they were the president. They had the speaker of the house. They had the senate majority, the vice president. They had all the key seats. The Sadducees were the most powerful. The Pharisees were a minority. They were not the most powerful. The Pharisees are much more zealous, much more passionate, more 
pure. Now we'll insert this. The New Testament never shows us anywhere. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying never does the New Testament give us a, a conversion story of Sadducees, but it gives us conversion stories of Pharisees. And then lastly, what I want to note about the Sadducees that may answer some of our question is that since they dominated the offices of the high priest, they therefore dominated the office, of, they dominated the whole Sanhedrin court. They, they had control of that. Again, the majority of it, they filled those seats, which led them to this. This is their inner desire. Write it down. They desired to stay on Rome's good side. They desired to stay on Rome's good side, the Sadducees. This was really part of their thinking. I believe, I, again, I'm, I'm reading between the lines. I believe if we could go back in time and really get into their psyche, their mind probably went something like this. We have to stay on Rome's good side because if we don't, they're going to send their Roman legions in here and crush us, and we got to stay doing the right thing. These people, granted, I know we disagree with them on the resurrection, but people who believe in life after death will do some crazy things. Those of us who don't believe in life after death, we want to play it safe and keep the status quo, and we want to keep our powerful positions. If these guys are going around telling them about the, about the resurrection and they start stirring that up, they're going to start being riotous and causing problems and wanting a revolution. And then the Romans are going to come in and crush us. And so no doubt they're justifying all this in their mind. Why we, We've got to put a stop to this. We're doing Israel a favor, no doubt, is what they're thinking. You see what's happened for the last few hundred years before this? They're no longer spiritual leaders. They're politicians. Sidebar, governments fail when its officials subconsciously view keeping their position of power as more important than ruling righteously. Uh-oh. Governments fail and nations suffer when its government officials, even subconsciously, they would never say it, if they even subconsciously view keeping their position of power, it's important. The nation America needs me. They need me. Yeah, but we don't need you if you're not going to rule rights. No, you don't understand the big picture. I've got to keep my position. When the goal is you keeping your position at the expense of ruling righteously, the nation's going to suffer. We're in trouble. Look at verse number one. And as they were speaking to the people, here they come. As they were speaking, what does that tell us? Peter's interrupted in the middle of his message. I said a while ago, you've seen somebody annoyed. Now I had the word greatly annoyed. I don't think they came up like this. Y'all done? What's going on? Oh, you. Wow. How did this happen? This is awesome, man. That's great. How did this happen? No wonder you guys are all, nuh-uh. Again, reading between the lines in my mind. Here they come across the courtyard. <laughs> Big force. Hey! Hey! Be quiet! You stop talking right now! And they come up and they start, and they put their hands on them. And they roughed them up. They put them in custody. So we got to ask ourselves, what are they so annoyed about? Three things. Number one. Verse number two. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. What's bothering you guys? 
you two have no right to be teaching at all. You're Galileans. I know who you are. Again, this is why I kind of think this reaction is probably the first time. They're not used to seeing Peter and John. They maybe have seen, they've never seen them as taking the lead in teaching. Like, no, 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 no. We've dealt with you. We know who you are. But now they're up talking. Yeah, your leader had authority and power, and he used to use this same area. Don't you think for a second that you're going to, because we're in charge. What you guys have been doing up there, that's some nonsense. That's not going to fly down here in, in Jerusalem. This is our temple. It's kind of their mindset. We know you've not been through the rabbinical schools. You have no training. You have no authorization. You're not sanctioned to teach here. You're lowly Galileans. Number two, it's what they taught also. The fact that they taught at all, number two, it's what they taught. And here's the first one. They're out telling people that Jesus has been resurrected. They can't accept that. Number three, they're not only saying that, but they're saying that other people can be resurrected through Jesus also. Do you see how damaging this is to the Sadducees and to this whole group? Why? Because they're saying the person that the Sadducees just had executed as a blasphemer is now alive. And MacArthur nails it when he writes this short little sentence. Write this down. If Jesus had risen, they, the Sadducees, were exposed as heretics. They're preaching that Jesus is alive and he's been resurrected and telling all the people, you can too have life after death and be resurrected through Christ yourself. Well, if it's brought out and people start believing that there is a resurrection, that Jesus has been resurrected, then all of a sudden the Sadducees are seen for what they are. Heretics. Heretics because they crucified Christ and heretics for their teaching. This is, this is not a little side doctrine, a little tertiary, a little secondary doctrine. This is a major doctrine. If you missed it on resurrection, we can't trust anything that you believe. Why are you guys our leaders? They can't have that. So we've got to arrest them and put them in jail. Look at verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So I ask you real quickly, what is their crime? Peter and John's crime is twofold. Number one, they healed a lame man. I get it. This is important. We need to just get in our minds so that we're not surprised by anything. Their big crime was they healed a lame man who had never walked a day in his life in the name of Jesus. And when a crowd gathered, they gave Jesus the credit for it and started talking to this crowd about their sin and calling them to salvation. That's their big crime. And they're going to jail for it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, All who desire to live godly, all who desire, listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? So I just want to tell you again, don't be shocked. If you have ever had a sincere, genuine, pure heart and done something for God, but someone else took it the wrong way and attacked you and persecuted you so that you've suffered for it, you're not the first, you won't be the last, you're actually in very good company. Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Peter and John for righteousness' sake. Paul will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Joseph is not new. Joseph in the Old Testament went to prison. Why? Because he refused to commit the sin of adultery with Potiphar's wife. Daniel, persecuted for praying. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
persecuted for refusing to take part in a mass display of idolatry. Jeremiah persecuted because he told the truth about how long Israel was going to be in captivity. Nehemiah, after the fact, is going to suffer because he dares to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Fast forward past the Bible into the 1500s and many other people before that. Martin Luther is going to be persecuted because he dared to preach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so expect it. Let's not be shocked. Why is these bad things happening to us? It's been going on for a long time. And remember, Satan often uses religious people. Last thought, and then we'll move to our second point. Verse number four, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Again, so if the number of the church is up to 5,000 males, we're probably talking about some 20,000 total people. Church is just booming. Quick thought. Really focus your mind on verse 4 because there's another principle. It's going to come across stronger when we get to chapter 10, but you see it here if we'll pay attention. But they're arrested, put in custody, but many of those who had heard the word believed. Peter and John are preaching. Their message is interrupted. They had given this, Peter had given this general broad call in verse number 19 of chapter 3 to repent. And if you'll repent, God will blot out your sins. So they give this broad general call and then they're taken into custody. This is important. There's no time in this sermon for there to be any kind of indication publicly of who actually did this in their heart. Who repented in their heart? Who changed their view toward Christ? Who's put their faith and trust in Christ? There's no time for any public display. Chapter 2, the sermon at Pentecost was different. Listen to chapter 2, verse number 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, who's getting baptized? Who's going to align with Christ? I believe that was very public, whether it be a raising of the hand or something vocal or move over here if, you, if this is you and some 3,000 people. But on this occasion in the temple, there is no public display of who's doing this in their heart. And yet, it's been said, and I think it's in Proverbs. I didn't look it up. When you get an arrow and you pull it back and you release it and you've shot the arrow... You can never pull the arrow back. Oh, no, I didn't mean it for her to hit that. Once it's gone, you can't pull it back. Once you pull the trigger and that projectile comes out of that pistol or that rifle, you can't call back. It's the same thing with words. Once the words are out, you can't call them back. So for the enemies of Christ, oh, they arrested Peter and John. But in their case, the damage had already been done. Here's the thought. We don't always see publicly what God is doing in people's hearts. God is always working. Don't just assume, well, didn't see anything outwardly visible. These people who repented ended up aligning themselves with the church, and the church grew to 5,000 males. Number two this morning. Number two. Verses 5 through 12, Peter declares bold truths about Jesus. Peter declares... Bold truths about Jesus. Look at verse number 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. This is the Sanhedrin. So catch it. The Sanhedrin has 71 members. The high priest is the one 
and they have 71 members. Look at verse 5. Got your Bible open? On the next day, their rulers, that's a generic term for all of these people. And then we have these elders. Elders, these are going to be the heads of the Jewish families. These are the wealthy people, the landowners. They have the, the best businesses. Again, they're the older, more mature people. Look to them. Surely they need to be among the 71. On the next day, they're rulers and elders and the scribes. So you've got these, these Sadducees dominate the Sanhedrin, but you also have the Pharisees represented here by the scribes, and they're useful. Now, by the way, watch. Sadducees are dominant. They have the numbers. The Pharisees are the minority, but they're very zealous. Often they're the enemies of each other, but sometimes they work together, as in the case against Jesus. And the Pharisees are useful because they know the law better than the Sadducees. And so when there's opposition, it needs to be through the Bible, doctrinally and teaching. We turn to these people, so they're very useful in the whole council as well. Verse number 5, let's keep reading verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Did anything catch your mind there is unusual? What's unusual about verse 6? Anybody catch it? Who does it say is the high priest? Annas. What does another section of, of the New Testament does it say who is the high priest at this time? Who's the high priest at this time? Caiaphas. So is Luke being wrong? No, pay attention, watch. The appointment in the Old Testament, in the Bible, the appointment of the high priest was for life. It's for life. He's put there, he's gonna be the high priest till he dies, and then generally his kids will become the high priest. But we're at a point in history, history in the Roman Empire where the Romans didn't allow that to happen. The Romans would appoint the high priest. If someone started getting too powerful or if, again, these are politicians at this point, and this is why. They won't stay on Rome's good side, keep their position, because if they don't, Rome doesn't like them. They'll depose them, and Rome will put another person in. Let this sink in. We're in about the middle of a stretch from like 30-something B.C., until 66 A.D., that's about 100 years, the historians tell us that the Romans actually appointed some 28 different high priests. So over 100 years, the Romans appointed 28 different high priests. That is less than a four-year term average. That's less than our president's. This is supposed to be a lifetime, and they're just rolling through them. Now, some had really short terms, and some of the names that we see here had some longer terms. I'm going to give you some dates, and it's going to be hard because you're not seeing it. You're just going to have to hear it. Annas is the high priest appointed from A.D. 6 until A.D. 15. A.D. 6, so about 10 years. Caiaphas is going to be appointed A.D. 18. So Anna stops at 15. Caiaphas is going to be A.D. 18. He has a long term until A.D. 36. So about 18 years. Anna's about 10 years. Skip three years. Then Caiaphas. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So he gets 18 years. Then at the end of that, Anna's son John is going to be A.D. 36 and 37. But the reason that, that Luke writes it this way is because, yes, officially Caiaphas is the high priest according to the Romans. But everybody in Jerusalem knows that Annas, the father-in-law and the dad of this high priestly family, he's the real power behind the high priest's position. And there's 71 of them. Now watch verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? 
See the word midst? Here's what I, I want you to picture this scene. I don't know how large the room was, but these 71 people are called and convened to try the case of Peter and John. They did not sit in like a balcony, a tier, like a bleacher section, like a choir. They did not sit like a choir. Oh, there's 71, there's a high priest in the middle. I come, I, I take my chair to table, and they kind of grill me, and I am. No, no, no. They sat in a semicircle. They sat in a semicircle, and the accused person stands in the middle of the semicircle, and the whole thing is designed to intimidate anybody who's trying to stand before the Sanhedrin. They just want to crush them and to feel the weight of all these people. This is the most powerful people in the land, the wealthiest. These are the smartest. These are the people that could literally kill, kill me if they want, if they get permission from the Roman Empire, and they could at least put me into prison. I've got to be on my P's and Q's. For, again, very intimidating. Back when I was just a little kid, before I went to Christian school, I think I was around 11 or 12 when I went to Christian school, I used to play football a little bit in our local community. Played for the North Asheville Tigers. I was just a little little guy. Our coaches had a certain drill, and I hated this drill. I think it's a stupid drill. It's called the bull ring. And the bull ring was where the whole team would get in a circle, and one player would be in the middle of the bull ring, and the coaches would just stand outside and they'd call a number. And whoever's number they call on the outside, if that was your jersey number, you were supposed to go and plow the guy in the middle. Just picture that. I, I don't, I, I want to look back and if I could go back in time, like, hey, what are we supposed to be learning? Alertness. Oh, okay. <laughs> 43. So you're looking around, where's 43? So, oh, here it comes. You can at least, boom, 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 till the whistle goes. And like, whew, I get out of the circle. He's in the bull ring now. Stupid drill. And some guys really hated it. Like, I didn't like to be on the outside. I didn't like my number called. I didn't want to go plow somebody. Some guys loved that thing, like, yeah, I'm going to wait. And, and they'd call the number, and there would be no movement. And they'd wait till you turn your back. And then, <laughs> like, really? Love this drill. It is very intimidating. Look at verse 7. Grammatically, I want you to feel just the weight of one thing in verse 7. By what power, by what name? Do you know grammatically where the emphasis of this sentence is? It's on the word you. Can I paraphrase it? How did a couple of guys like you do this? How do you you two guys do this where do you you've got to answer us something how do you you do this we need to know and so verse number eight then peter filled with the holy spirit said to them and again i cannot get across the boldness that peter speaks with who remembers by the way let's do a quick quick review Ready? The baptism of the Spirit. How many Christians are baptized in the Spirit? Oh, how many times is a person baptized in the Spirit, biblically? One time. The indwelling of the Spirit. How many Christians are indwelt by the Spirit? Oh, how many times is a Christian indwelt by the Spirit in their body? Just one time. But here we have a term, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't think this means 
continuously filled with the Spirit. What this means is Peter was filled with the Spirit back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He's going to be part of a group that's filled with the Spirit again in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse number 31. But on this occasion, he's filled with the Spirit. What we are about to read, ladies and gentlemen, is a fulfillment of Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, and Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, where Jesus told his disciples, the time's going to come, I'm going to be gone, and you're going to get persecuted. But when that happens, you're going to go stand before kings and governors and councils and synagogues. And when that happens, don't you even wonder and premeditate what you're going to answer, because in that moment, I just want you to rely upon the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say and they're not going to be able to answer what he gives you in that moment so here's peter definitely filled with the spirit the day before but apparently not always filled with the spirit through the night but on this occasion now standing here and over and over how did this happen by then how did a couple of guys like you oh well if that's what we're being answering for then i'm going to answer that and then the spirit fills him fresh and new now i want you to answer this What have we learned? That when a person is genuinely filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, what part of us does it always affect? Our tongue. Our speech. Write that down by way of review. Being filled with the Spirit always affects a person's speech. And it gives us boldness to exalt Christ and to proclaim Christ You may be sitting here this morning saying, Jeff, I I just don't have any boldness. My personality is such, I'm just not out there. I can't ever see myself really talking to people about Jesus. And I'll just answer that bluntly. You can't do it because you're not being filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have boldness and He will affect your speech. In some cases, it will affect what you don't don't say. In other cases, it will affect what you do say. More times than not, it is what you will say. So Peter's filled with the Spirit. Write this down. Barclay writes. This is important. Peter spoke to a group of people that were, quote, and I feel it, the wealthiest, the most intellectual, and the most powerful in the land. And yet, Peter, the Galilean fisherman, stands before them, these 71, Rather as their judge than as their victim. Peter, the Galilean fisherman, stands before them rather as their judge than as their victim. For your note, write this. Peter is not on trial. Peter switches everything because he's filled with the Spirit and puts them on trial. You're on trial. Because Peter's going to end up making at least five bold claims Stating five bold truths. He totally switches it and he puts them. He is so filled with the Spirit, so accurate and concise and powerful in what he says. When you, if you want to look ahead for next week, what you're going to find is they have nothing to say. He's going to hit them with wave one, wave two, wave three, wave four, wave five. He just continues, keeps hitting them with these truths and they just sit there and take it. Hey, wait a minute. You're on trial. No, you're on trial. Because he's filled with the Spirit. So what takes place? Five bold claims. Look at verse number 10. Three of them are in verse number 10. Let's read verse 10 and we'll note three things. If we're being called in here and be examined because of a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man's been healed, here comes verse 10. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. There are three things in the text. Did you catch the first one? It is subtle. We get so used to saying something that we just believe. I don't want to give it away yet. Do you see what Peter did? Because it might have slipped by us, but I'll promise you it didn't slip by them. How bold was it for Peter to make the... You want to know by what power? I'll tell you. Let it be known to... Again, I believe their jaw is dropping. I cannot believe this man has the audacity to stand here and say that. Right here in the Sanhedrin. You say, what did he say? Let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Messiah... Christ of Nazareth. I'm not going to say hardly anything else on that one. Don't have time. Peter states that Jesus of Nazareth, they know exactly who that is. He comes into the Sanhedrin and he says, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Okay? It's his title. If you want to switch it there and just say, they're blown away. Did he really just say what I... He did. You ought to say something. I'm not going to. Dude's on a roll. Look, he's he's, he's, he's angry or something. I'm not confronting that guy. Jesus is the Christ. That's the first thing you need to know. They got nothing to say. Right to their 71 faces. I like that. I like this. I'm a big Paul guy. I like Peter here. This This is good Peter. Number two. Peter then boldly states that the name of Jesus healed the lame man. The name, because we've covered this, I'm not going to spend long. We've hit this over and over. The name, the power in the name of Jesus is the theme of chapter 3 and 4. Peter states that the name of Jesus is the one that healed. Yeah, we got a name. It's the name of Jesus. That's what's healed the lame man. What he's saying is, you may be hearing this and saying, I don't understand this. Peter should have said Jesus healed the lame man. He says, the name of Jesus healed. This is confusing. No, not to them. Write it down. In the ancient world, a name, it wasn't just like a collection of letters that made sounds, like utterance of sounds. In the ancient world, a name denoted a person. It denotes the person and their authority, especially when you can't see the person. In essence, what Peter is doing in verse number 10. He's saying, you want to know who did this? Jesus did it. But in fact, Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't even have to be here physically in person to be able to do this. Just his name. He doesn't have to be here. Now, he has a body. He is somewhere physically. In essence, I'm reading between the lines. He's seated at the right hand of God, but his spirit is everywhere. And the power of his name is everywhere to those who have faith in it. It's the name that is attached to the person and his authority. And we don't even have to be able to see him. This is how powerful this person is. They're blown away. I'm going to hit this one more time. I think I've hit it before. It's real simple. One of three things actually happened in chapter 3 at the beginning with a lame man. Either Peter has supernatural ability or there is another force that has supernatural ability that gave it to Peter or Jesus and the power in his name is what gave Peter that ability. Now, if you'll think just a little bit, when you put it, it has to be one of the three. It's either Peter's power because he's the one who said it. There's another 
powerful force. Or it is Jesus, as Peter claims. It has to be this one, because if it was Peter's own power, we know human nature. Peter would have to take credit for it. I, I just have the power to heal people. But if it's one of these other two, he couldn't say that. And since it's Jesus, he can't say that because that would be lying and detracting from the real authority. If it's this other power source and Peter's giving credit to Jesus, then he's robbing this person. And whoever this is is so powerful that they have supernatural power. Peter would be afraid to do that and it would be wrong. He would be lying to give Jesus the credit if it really belongs to this authority and power. It has to be this one. In essence, what Peter's throwing before them, it's in the name and the power of Jesus. And if you disagree with that, then how do you guys think I was able to do this? Number three, still in verse number 10, you saw it. Let all, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, you all crucified him. Oh, I let them hear it yesterday. They could have gotten, they could have overridden what you guys did in front of Pilate, but they didn't and they have their fault. But ultimately, you know who's the most at fault, practically speaking, humanly speaking? It is you 71 men. You are the ones. Write this down. Peter states very clearly and boldly that though they had murdered Jesus, God had raised him from the dead. You murdered him. But God raised him from the dead. This is what you did, but this is what God did. And this one is especially damaging to the Sanhedrin. Especially damaging, really, most of all, to the Sadducees. Why? Because for Peter to stand and give credit for this miracle with the lame man to Jesus is damaging to the Sadducees because it proves that Jesus is alive. Because Dead people don't have power, and the names of dead people don't have authority. So Jesus is the one. It wasn't me. It wasn't this other power source. It was Jesus, and the only way he did it is because Jesus is alive. He has come back from the dead, and he doesn't state it here, but they know what he's saying. We're witnesses. Again, I do a lot of reading between the lines, and, and I'm not trying to add to the Bible, but I try to really picture these narratives when they're laid out in front of us. And I, again, I, I say this is what's happening. Here's the dynamic. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about the sermon at Pentecost. But here it is more personal this time. Here's what Peter, in essence, is doing in verse 10. You all know. You 71 know that we know. You all know that we know that you've been spreading lies saying that we stole the body? You know that we know that you know that we know this. So what we can do is just skip the little song and dance. Anybody want to stand right now and to our faces with a straight face and some confidence accuse us of stealing the body? You know that's not possible. That's why you set the Roman guard there. So the real question this morning, again, I'm reading real, really reading between the lines now. I'm picturing the layout of the room, and in the middle, you got the high priestly family, and you got what's called the, the chief priests. And then you have the elders and the Pharisees scattered around. It's as though Peter is saying, When are you and when are you over here going to have the honesty and the courage to have the hard conversations that these guys in the middle don't want you to have? Because when those Roman soldiers came back scared to death and started telling them about an earthquake and a stone and these two angels, 
and the tomb was empty, and they told them, they paid them some money and told them to go tell everybody that we stole the body like all of the whole Roman unit fell asleep. When are y'all going to be honest enough to start asking the hard questions? Yeah, he makes a pretty good point there. I've been wondering that myself, but I didn't want to actually say it. And you can see them up there. Human, yeah, yeah, you've been exposed. Quick thought. Peter just speaks about the resurrection as a matter of fact, completed, confirmed event. And they respond with silence. Jesus himself, this is important, Jesus himself stood in front of this same group of people months earlier, but Jesus stood silently He chose not to defend himself to ensure that the will of God was done because Jesus needed to die. He could have defended himself very easily. This was a a facade of a court. But now Peter and John are standing months later, and they're not standing quietly. Peter is boldly declaring truths that are very incriminating for this group. And oh, by the way, why can he do this and they don't say anything? All the evidence is on Peter's side. Here he stands. How many times have y'all walked past him and you couldn't do anything for him? Something healed this man. There's an empty tomb. You tried your best, but you couldn't stop. You tried to seal it when you're going to start asking the honest questions. And oh, all those passages that we keep talking to you about and telling the people about that never made sense, now suddenly they make sense. Peter was bold. Number four is in verse 11. Peter's as always said, I'm not done though. Since you called me in here, and this man, I don't know what y'all are going to do with us. But while I'm here, I may as well get my money's worth till you stop me. So verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I'll be brief here. Peter states that Jesus and frankly them, they and Jesus are the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 118. I think it's around verses 22, 23, somewhere around there. I may be wrong on that. So what's this fulfillment? It's about the rejected cornerstone. In essence, what Peter's saying, hey, 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 you guys have fulfilled Scripture. Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected, and you are the builders. See, a cornerstone was carefully, let me pause there. If you know the answer to this, you can feel free to say it out loud. What's the most important part of a building? Hint, it's not the paint and the carpet. What's the most important part of a structure of a building? It's, the, it's, it's what? It's its foundation. So in this day, the way they would build the foundation was focused on a cornerstone. The cornerstone, when rock builders, here called builders, when they're going through the rock pile, they're looking for the best stone to use as the cornerstone because this is going to set at the end of two walls where they come together and it's going to establish the whole alignment, the stability, the strength of the building. Everything's tied into this cornerstone. It usually had to be chiseled to fit perfectly. We found one and they put it there. But here's the thing, in this spiritual house that God is building, Jesus never needed chiseled. God ordained that Jesus was a perfect fit. But the problem is what Peter's telling these 71 people, you're supposed to be the most spiritual, the most spiritually discerning and wise people in the whole world, but the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the Creator of all, was standing in front of you and you missed it. You miss the very foundation of God's kingdom. Everything is built on this Christ. He stood right in front of you. You not only didn't see him as the most important, crucial piece, you didn't see him as the second. I see great value. You're just not the ultimate. They didn't do that. 
They didn't see him as third. You saw him as totally worthless. You threw him in the coal pile. This is how ignorant you guys are. And they sat there. Can't believe this guy's saying this right to our face. He's just accused us. Yeah. If the shoe fits and it does. You're blind as a bat. The Son of God was in front of you. Number five is in verse 12. Verse number 12. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we, by which we must be saved. Number five, Peter states that Jesus is the only way to be saved. This is the verse that I'm going to fail the most miserably on. All I'll say is you ought to go home this week and in the coming months, you ought to just, we need to just chew on the truth of verse number 12. Can I impress that upon you? Can I beg you, those watching at home, please, please meditate and let's contemplate and really think about the truth that is in verse 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, an apostle, the most authoritative people in the history of the world outside of Jesus himself, is giving us a truth. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a very exclusive statement. This is a statement that excludes all other views. Notice the words, there's salvation, no one else, no other name. Very exclusive. It boils, look this way, it boils down to this. If the Bible is true, if this book is true, if it is, then Jesus is the only way to heaven. If the Bible is not true, then either we don't need to be saved. There's nothing to be saved from. If the Bible's not true, there's nothing to be saved from. Or there is no way to be saved. Or there's another way to be saved other than the Bible's wrong. There's a different way to be saved. Or... There's several ways to be saved, and Jesus is one of them. Do you see? Does everybody catch that? Does that make sense? If the Bible is true, Jesus is the only way to be saved. If it's not true, <clears throat> maybe there's nothing to be saved from. Maybe we can't be saved. There's a different way, or there's multiple ways, and he's one of them. What no one can do is do this. No one can do this. Oh, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is true, but I also think there are other ways too. You can't do that. If you say there are other ways too, then what you're saying, no, 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 no. Just say, I don't believe the Bible is true. Oh, no, but I do. No, you don't. This goes together. This is very exclusive. We live in a country where today... Millions of people hate Christians. And you know one of the big reasons? You Christians, you're so narrow-minded. You're so arrogant. You're so intolerant 
Why can't you just say some other things like, yeah, you got your beliefs, but there's these other things too. Why can't you just allow for some other opinions on this stuff? We can't. Can't. We need not be arrogant, but we've got to be exclusive. You say, Jeff, why? Write it down if it's not clear yet. Christians may seem to be intolerant because we have to be intolerant. Why? We cannot tolerate other views when it comes to salvation. Why? Two reasons. Because of the seriousness of eternity. And because of the exclusiveness of the one way to escape hell. You know what I thought about? I thought about these people that were buried under the rubble over in Turkey and Syria. How long do you think five minutes felt like being buried under that? How long? Five minutes. Screaming, in pain, wondering if anybody... And then the five minutes turns to an hour. And then 12 hours, and a day, and two, and three, and four days. I don't... How, what was the longest someone was pulled out of their life? Anybody here? How many days? They pulled them out of there like five and six days later is my understanding. I don't know how. Could you imagine every moment just seems like a long, long time. They're totally traumatized. Listen, that is nothing in comparison to eternity in hell. We have to be exclusive. We've got to be intolerant because the Bible's intolerant of other views. Maybe you're thinking, well, Jeff, maybe Peter just misspoke. Hold your spot here. Flip over to John chapter 14. This is not the only place. Look at John chapter 14. Flip over there. You know where we're going. Look at John 14. I want you to see it with your eyes. It'll be on the screen too. John chapter 14, look at verse 6. Guys, I'm going away and where I'm going you can't come, but you know how to get there. You know the way. Tom's like, Lord, we don't know where where you're going. How can we know the way? Oh, you do know the way. How? Verse 6. Jesus said, I want you to pay attention because I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know the way. I am the, you know me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He just told them where he's going. He's going to the Father. Can I offer this? This going to the Father is code for salvation, eternal, eternity, eternal life. When you get to eternal life, you're going to the Father. Look at it either on the screen or in your Bible. Look at it. Do you see a word or a phrase that points out exclusivity and intolerance in this verse? I'm sorry? No one. You see it? And I heard it just now. Except the. Did everybody catch him? Hey, no, you know where, you know the way. Guys, I'm away. No. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father. We're not going to get to heaven and like, how'd you get here? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Hey, we found one over here. How'd you get here? I just never heard about Jesus, but I got to hear another way. Hey, we found one. They're not going to be there. It's all through Jesus. All through Jesus. And he throws this word except. Jesus says, I'm the exception. 
Here's what he's saying. There is no door to, e- to heaven and eternal life. There's no door to escape hell except me. And this door is very narrow. And it's really low. There's no room for you to come. Like, I'm coming, Jesus. I'm believing in you. And I'm doing my part. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to get rid of all that you stuff. You got to leave all that out. There's no room for you and your good works. You got to just slide through just Jesus only. And by the way, you need to get low. You got to get humble. 1 John 5. Look at 1 John 5. Flip over there quickly. We're moving quickly. 1 John 5. Verse number 12. Blanket statement. Same author of the last chapter, last verse we just read. Same author later on. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Watch this real simple. If we have this group of people, all of us, we're putting this group, we have a relationship with the Son of God. We have Christ. Good news, all of you have life. Okay, what about everybody else? Well, some of them have life too, but all of you have life. A few of them, no, no, no. You're either in this group, you have the Son, and you have life, because if you're in that group, you don't have life. Bible's real clear. Peter was not off his rocker. Peter was not speaking out of turn. There is no other name. There's no one else. Jesus is the way. There's no other way. No other name given among men. You either have the Son or you don't. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. Quick review. This, everything from here to the end is all important. Quick review. We have over and over made four key statements. As you make your way back to Acts 4. Four key statements. All people in the world need to be saved because God is holy and just and He will allow no sin into heaven. All people need to be saved. All need to be saved. Number two, truth number two, good news. God has made a way for people to be saved. Everybody needs to get saved. God has made a way for people to be saved. Truth number three, Jesus is the only way. Everybody needs to be saved. God's made a way to be saved. Jesus is it. You say, Jeff, I thought you said there were four. Truth number four. Billions of people in the world have never heard the one way. Billions. Please don't answer out loud. I know most of you know the answer to this. Please don't answer out loud. Don't mumble it. Feel it. Everybody needs to get saved. God has made a way to be saved. Jesus is the one way. Billions have never heard the one way. Don't answer out loud. What happens to those people who've never heard the one way? Don't answer out loud. Just feel it. What happens to them? If they never hear about Jesus and he's the only way, they never hear about even his name or they maybe know the name Crazy uncle so-and-so uses that when he gets mad. Guy at work uses it when he gets mad. I remember hearing it when I was in school. But they never hear. that. They don't even hear the name Jesus or they never know what he's done. What happens to these people when they die? Now hang with me. Many Christians assume, and sometimes it's subconsciously. Some have never even thought about it. You know, wait. What happened? 
Acts 4.12, 1 John 5.12, John 14.6, wait a minute, if he's the only way and these people have never heard the one way, what's going to happen to them when they die? Many Christians subconsciously make an assumption that if someone never has the chance to hear about Jesus, well then after they die, they'll go to heaven. Why? Because they never heard. They never had a chance to hear about Jesus. They'll go to heaven. Or they'll at least be given a chance after they die. That's what will happen, right? Well, that's that's an important question. And the Bible does not leave us to wonder. It answers it. Now here I want to get your help. If God excuses people... Because they've never heard about Jesus, who is the one way. What has David Platt taught us would be the worst thing we could do. Tell them about Jesus. If God is ultimately just going to excuse, you never heard about Jesus, you get to come on in. If never hearing about Jesus is going to lead, if their ignorance is going to offset Acts 4.12, 1 John 5.12, and John 14.6. Then the last thing we need to do is go tell them about Jesus. When we look at it that way, then now all of a sudden we learn that missions is not only foolish. It's not only a big waste of those poor people's lives. I mean, they gave up a good life to go do that. It's not only a waste of our money, it's cruel. Leave these poor people in their ignorance because when you go tell them about Jesus, you're robbing them of their life-saving ignorance. Leave them in that. The last thing we should do is missions. But when we study the Bible, we find that missions are commanded. Now we know why. Because there is only... You say, whoa, 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 whoa. You have not answered the question. What is going to happen to these people that never hear the one way? Well, the Bible answers that. Let's finish in Romans quickly. Romans chapter 1. Very quickly. Romans 1. The Bible leaves no doubt. And it is frightening. Romans 1. Look at verse number. You got your Bible. I'm going to start with 19. You'll see 20 on the screen. Actually, verse 18 says that all unrighteousness, the wrath of God is being poured out and revealed against all unrighteousness. And ungodliness of men. Verse number 19. I'm going to get to verse 20 in a second. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Not everything about God. But there are things that are plain to all the people. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Now look at verse 20. For His invisible attributes. Namely His eternal power and divine nature. Have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world. Wait, Jeff, we just got the Old Testament 3,500 years ago. What about the thousands of years before that? God's eternal power and divine nature was, were clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. So, Paul writes, they, the Bible says they are without excuse. But they never heard about Jesus. But they had enough around them to know that there's a God. 
and to learn things about God from the creation. It's been known all along. If that's not clear enough, flip over to chapter 2. For me, it's just across the page. Look at chapter 2. Paul picks this theme up again. What about these people who never hear? What's going to happen to them? And by the way, I'll come back to our note in a moment. I hope I remember to do that. You flag me down if I don't. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law. They don't have the law. All who have sinned without the law will also, what? Perish without the law. Those who sinned without the law, they didn't have the Bible. What's going to happen to them? They also will perish. They'll perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, these people got the Bible, will be judged by the law. Last week we talked about degrees of punishment. God is going to judge everyone where they are. So these people who never had the Bible are going to be judged where they are. Without the law. God's not going to bring in the Old Testament and say, you did this and this and this. That's not what he's going to use. Verse number 13. Now for those that had the Bible, God is going to use that. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Hey, but I'm one of the groups. I went to a church and I heard the Bible. Great. That's not going to get you to heaven. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. None of us have done the law. We've all broken it. We're in trouble. Paul writes, for when Gentiles, that stands for the people who don't have the law in this time. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the Bible, by nature, by their instinct, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. When people who've never had the Bible know it's wrong to lie and it's wrong to dishonor their father and their mother. And they know that when that people over there in that hut leave, you don't just get to go in and go steal their stuff. A lot of people do that, but a lot of people know that's wrong. You don't just go murder someone. They just know that's wrong. We don't do that. And every society makes laws against stealing and committing murder. Well, how did they know to do that? They didn't have the Bible. It was stamped on their very being. Look at verse 15. They show when this happens, even without the Bible, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So if it's not clear, write this down. God will not excuse people because they never hear the gospel. These people will be judged as they are, and they will perish in hell. There's only one way. And God's not going to bend the rules because someone doesn't hear the one way. And so we finish in Romans 10. Two verses, and I'll be done. Romans 10. You'll see 13 on the screen, but can I just quickly have you glance up at 11? Romans 10, 11, not on the screen. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him. I'm doing that because the context, everyone who believes. Now, verse 13. Look at the Bible and zero in. Because we're talking about Jesus is the one way. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Everyone who calls, I'm going to add this phrase. Four truths. Again, I gave you four a while ago. Four last truths. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, believing in Him, they're all saved. 100%. Every person who ever, God, I'm confessing my sins to you. I'm admitting that. But I've heard that Jesus' death on the cross was for me. So I'm asking you, I am right now receiving your salvation. I'm calling on Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I receive it right now. And if you believe and expect that to happen, then it will happen 100%. All who call on the name of the Lord in faith are saved. There's truth number one. But verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Last four truths. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord with faith will be saved. Principle two. Only people who genuinely believe are going to call in faith. Hint. Why doesn't everybody just call on Jesus? Because they don't think they should. They don't think they need to. Or they don't think it will help if they do. They don't believe. Number two. Only those who genuinely believe will call. you got to genuinely believe before you'll call. That's why they don't. Principle three. Only people who hear about Jesus can believe. Watch. Why won't you just trust Jesus? Why would you just trust Jesus and be saved? Who? What? Trust who? What are you talking about? Trust Jesus. What is Jesus? Only hearers can believe. And only believers will actually call. And then the fourth truth is this. People will only hear... When God's people tell them. I'm in a room right now filled with people who assume, and somebody's going to come to your mind that you think is a lost person. This room is filled with people, people watching right now. You know what we do? We assume some other Christian is going to tell them about Jesus. Why do you assume that? Why have you not told them about Christ? There's only one way. There was a dark, 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 I mean a thousand midnights dark, rainy night. There's a windy road, and you know there's a bridge. And that bridge crosses a river, but man, it's been raining, it's been pouring. I mean, hurricane-type weather. And the water's gotten so high, you know it has washed that bridge out. Use your imagination. If it is deep, dark night, it is pouring down rain. And people are having to get off the interstate and they're taking this exit. And you know that there's a bridge that is out over a roaring, raging river. Are you obligated to warn them? In your conscience. Can you just go home, snuggle in your bed, snuggle up nice and tight and know, boy, I know that bridge is out, but at least I got off of it. I didn't go over You know full well, whatever was happening in your life, you're going to have to interrupt that. You're going to have to turn and put your headlights, and you're going to be 
flashing at people. And they're barely going to see you. Like, what in the world? You have to do that. That's hypothetical. Far more serious than that. You're like, I couldn't bear to just see their car and them just being washed away in this roaring, raging, muddy river and dying. One after I couldn't do that. I would have to do something. What we're talking about here is far more urgent and crucial than that. Billions of people have never heard about Jesus. He is the only way. And our county has thousands of them. And billions are around the world. You know what this calls for? This calls for personal evangelism. And it calls for missions giving and missions going and missions praying. We're doing Annie Armstrong. The estimate is some 280 million people in North America are not saved. I hear that number and I know where they're getting that. That's people who say I'm a Christian because I do this or that or the other. The number is way higher than 280 million people. What is God's will for you? I mean it. My last thought is a question. Do you really believe the Bible? I know y'all believe it. You believe it right here. That's why you're here this morning. Do you believe... Because the Bible says it, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We believe it right here. How would we live if we really, really believe that and the ramifications of it? Probably not how I've been living. I'm going to put a name on that list. I want you all to pray for it when you see it. And he and I, Lord willing, maybe even tomorrow, we're going to start going through the exchange. Who are you telling about Christ? Would you stand with me this morning? Father, I pray that you would challenge us with the truth of verse 12. All of this passage. But Lord, burden us. Burden me. Lord, let this verse and its truth become a real culture shaper for for grace for you. For me, for my life. God, I beg you. Give us great hope. Give us great, great joy. Give us the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us a a burden for discipleship. Got to invest not just in evangelism. Lord, show us the great value of multiplication and how it is greater than addition. That we need to take time to make more people, more disciples who are out making disciples. Lord, let our little church right here just become a lighthouse that just starts spreading your word and its truth across the county. We just want to see what you're going to do. We need you. Show us our purpose. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.